whacking old lady at a red light. Pull a gun on the owner of the liquor store. You think it's cool, act a fool if you like. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face. Scope on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think it's tough. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Kevin Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer, AMBS in the flesh, the New York State Hall of Famer. Uh, we bring you episode 380 today on the network of Coaching Kernan here. Got a wonderful guest today, just a single show today on Monday. But joining us, in addition to our special guests, we have our usual on Monday, star of A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. Will George will be with us today, as well as myself. Uh, guys, want to welcome you back to the show. Uh, before we bring on our guests, just want to welcome Kevin and Will. Welcome back to our show here today. Great, Great to, to be, be here. here. Great guest today. Oh, wonderful guest. Uh, very, yeah, and I'm very... going to be totally unfiltered today, so we're going to blow it out. Uh uh-oh, that's good by me. Driving will do that, Kevin. Exactly. <laughs> Got him on. Before, before we introduce our guest here, just want to thank a couple people. Uh, our audience, we're creeping close to that 60,000 mark right here. Appreciate your, your support. You know what to do. Five stars, write some comments, help us climb up that analytic podcast chart as we've been doing with iHeartRadio bit by bit. Thanks to Blackout Coffee here. Be awake, not woke is their slogan. Coffee's on AMBS this month. So use his code at checkout, capital K-E-V-I-K, K-E-V-I-K, all caps, followed by the number 20. Coffee's on AMBS this month. So uh, that's our appreciation to you guys out there. And to our buddy, Ted Kubiak, three-time world champion, uh, wrote two great books. Use those or use those as great stocking stuffers for your baseball lover. Old School and How to Field a Ground Ball, two separate books. I recommend those two uh, to any baseball lover in your family. Also got a new one I just put on my list and we'll find out a little bit more about Bullet Bob comes to Louisville later on, but I think I'm adding that to my Christmas list based on the stories I heard pre-show here. Uh, but with that, Kevin, welcome back to your show. What's percolating today? Well, as Will alluded to, I, I drove, uh, I, I left uh, St. Augustine 4.30 yesterday morning and drove up to New Jersey and hit the, hit that storm in Maryland and everything. And by the way, in Virginia, and I it's mainly the Maryland area, around Washington, because, you know, everything in Washington is wacky. Worst drivers in the world. I, you know, I've driven the whole country. They in and out. They go slow. They're in the speed lane going 45. They're, I think most of them are stoned, I think, to be honest with you. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I made it through the uh, gauntlet of driving the 95 quarter. Congratulations to me and my wife, Ann, who did the navigating and has to put up all my garbage. But, uh, yeah, um, Blackout Coffee, first of all, Kevy K, and 20 is is the code, and hopefully uh, we get some. Because, you know, it's basically we don't get anything unless you buy the coffee, and who knows what we get. It may not even be a penny. Who knows? But uh, so, so go buy the coffee, and we'll see if you get anything. It's worth a while because uh, we give you some great content here. And the other thing I want to say is I did my Ball 9 piece on um, Steve Soberoff. It's probably the be- one of the best pieces, if not the best piece, one of the best pieces I've written. And um, I'm, I'm not saying that to congratulate myself. I'm saying that to let you know there's good stuff out there, ballmine.com. You can find me at my uh, also at on X at AMBS underscore Kernan. 
but nobody's writing real stories anymore. It's all garbage. It's if we had to read one more Otani, where Otani's going to go? We all knew right from the beginning he's going to the Dodgers. I said on the show fifty times. Um, it's a joke what's going on, but this is a real story. This guy, Steve Soberoff, who was, by the way, one of the L.A. police commissioners, he was 10 years on the board there. He, um, a great guy. I, I, I was put in contact with him last week. He brought Jim Murray, the famous writer uh, from the L.A. Times, brought his typewriter years ago and 20 years ago, and that started him on his search of famous typewriters. And for those who are young and don't know what a typewriter is, it's a machine where you actually had to write and think at the same time. It didn't put in words for you. It didn't misspell words for you. It didn't screw anything up. It wasn't a soulless piece of junk like all the computers we have now. So uh, typewriters, and he went out and got Ernest Hemingway's typewriter, Hugh Hefner's typewriter, John Lennon's typewriter. It's all in the article. Read the article. Learn something about it. Um, uh, but the Jim Mary and one quick story, because you guys will love this story. And uh, I don't care if I'm taking up too much time today. Like I said, I'm, I'm totally it's your show, under- brother. It's your show. Yep. And uh, well, he wanted to buy. Uh, he, he saw that uh, Andy Rooney, you know, Andy Rooney's family, believe it or not, in Connecticut, they were having a garage sale, basically, uh, after Andy died, because, you know, a lot of times that's what families do. They just, you know, get rid of the stuff. So he saw the typewriter was there, Andy Rooney's typewriter. He's in. He's on the West Coast. He's in L.A. Steve is in L.A. He calls up. Um, now he wants to get that typewriter. He knows it's going to be a madhouse the next day at the garage sale. He goes, uh, he goes, hey, uh, so he doesn't know who to call. So, But he's a smart guy. He was in real estate. He, he kind of built this, was involved with building the Staples Center and getting the Kings and the Lakers and the Clippers all there. So he, he's a smart businessman. And what I like about him, he's a regular guy. You know, he, he, he just, he's one, one full, full of crap people that we have so much in the world nowadays, especially in government. This guy was a police commissioner with LA police. He told me they had 4 million calls last year, guys, 4 million calls and they shot their guns 32 times. 32 times. And most of those were being shot at. And that's why they shot back. So so he's a big defender of, of the police. And he's also understands that it has to be community policing. So so that's just just a little background. on him. So he's got to get this machine. He wants to get this this uh, Andy Rooney typewriter. And he what does he do? And, and this is how his common sense kicks in. 11 o'clock at night on the East Coast. He he looks through the light, yellow. He looks through a chamber of commerce, finds a realtor. He says realtors always pick up their phone, calls him at 11 o'clock at night. The guy thinks he's nuts, but he, he finally explains to him what he wants done. Turns out this guy lives three doors down from Andy Rooney. Talk about divine intervention. Three doors down from Andy Rooney. And um, and the next day, he, as he's talking to the guy, he finds out, well, you know, I just started in the realtor business. I used to be in the CIA. This is, again, I'm not making any of this up. This is all in the story. So he, he's got this CIA realtor guy. And um, the next day, they, the realtor puts him on, you know, they FaceTime and he goes, oh, my God, look at the line. It's 500 people. It's 500. How am I going to get in the house? And he and, and Steve goes, you're a freaking uh, CIA. Figure it out. So he, he, he snuck in the back door, got in the house, offered $5,000 for the typewriter, took the typewriter at the moment, ran out of the back door with it before anybody else could get to near the typewriter within an hour and a half, CBS lawyers call. 
they call Steve Sobroff and they say, hey, we want that typewriter. That's our typewriter. And Steve does not back down. He goes, no, it's not. It's my typewriter. This was Andy's typewriter from his home. He goes, we'll give you. He spent $5,000 for the typewriter. They, they were offering for 500 bucks. He gave him five grand. So everybody wins. CBS offers him $125,000 for the typewriter. $125,000. He turns them down. No, because the collection means so much to him at the time, you know, and uh, and he's 75 now. So he keeps the typewriter. That typewriter with John Lennon's typewriter. Pierce Bronson typed on John Lennon's typewriter for $5,000. He gave that to uh, the uh, the uh, uh, journalism uh, scholarship program for Jim Murray. Great guy. Great story. Go read it. It'll be the best thing you read today. Get away from all the other garbage that's being written and read this story at ballonline.com. That's it. Go. I love it. Well, I'm going to say one thing about your writing. I, I love your writing. You know that. So I'll brag on you. I, I, your writing's unique because you write how you speak. Um, exactly. And I, and I love that. That's, that's unique. I got to ask one, one selfish question here of you. Um, I, I, I got, again, I love the writing, I, but I love your creativity, how you came to it. How'd you come to that story? I mean, real quick. Well, again, I, part of it, Dave, and, and you guys know it, and this is what's great about our guests today. It's a lot of it's connections, you know, knowing people. Uh, people know that there's people in the business now. Now, I'm, I'm not with the paper I used to be with because they, they made the decision to eliminate my position. I'm not even going to mention them. But, uh, you know, that's what they did. I did not cry about it. I just moved on. But people in the business and I'm talking about big, you know, PR people, everybody. They know I can I can I can tell their story the way they want it told. And, and like you said, make it human. I mean, I, in that story, I brought in my own own typewriter stories. Um, um, you know, uh, I used to work with a guy in, in, in San Diego and he, Phil Kyle was his name. Great guy. He, he was with, he, you know, he crossed the Rhine in World War Two. So this guy paid his dues. All right. He, you know, Patton, Patton's group. Um but he was the greatest baseball writer to learn from. And that's who I learned from some things. So I went to San Diego. He, he was uh, up in his career at that point, but he was still writing baseball. He tells me a story one day. He's very close to Sandy Koufax. Um, and Sandy and him were very tight because he covered the Dodgers when they moved west before San Diego had a team. So Sandy and him were great buddies. Um, so Sandy one day goes, Phil, I'm going to retire and I want you to have the story. So here's my quotes. Imagine getting the Sandy Koufax retirement story. But there's a catch to the story because I'm not ready to retire yet. So write the story up. And Phil had a little typewriter, a little portable typewriter. He wrote the story up. He kept that story in his typewriter case for, for a year or two. I'm not sure how long exactly. And one day he gets a call from Sandy. Okay, Phil, it's time. Run the story. Story was already pre-typed, pre-written. Boom. He, he, he put the story, you know, he faxed it over to his office Uh um, it was like the uh, pre-faxes. It wasn't even a regular fax back then. It's another story itself. So Phil wrote that story, kept in his typewriter for more than a year. When Sandy gave me the okay, that's relationships. That's what I have with people. So they trust me with their stories. And I came about that story from a guy I knew in New York who mentioned it to me. And by the way, those typewriters now, because he's 75 and he's raising money for charity and things, um, those typewriters are heritage auctions. So if you want to buy any these incredible story about this, Joe DiMaggio's typewriter. Joe DiMaggio's typewriter, he, he picks it up one day and it's rattling. So he thinks there's something wrong with it. Inside the typewriter was a cut up bank card or, you know, a credit card back from like, you know, way back when that Joe DiMaggio had cut up and blown in his typewriter to hide. He ta he scotch taped it back all together. 
These are some of the stories you get. So, Dave, that's a long answer. Sorry to be so. No, uh, I asked. That was a, that was my selfish question. I love to hear how you come to your creative your creative stuff. So, so people trust me. They have a story. So, and a lot of times, I think of them. I got a great one this week coming up, and I'm on. Actually, when we get off air, I'm gonna I'm gonna send a video to both these guys because I'm doing something on an amazing picture, and uh, I don't want to give the story away because you. Some, and a lot of times, these stories uh, you give them away. And somebody else will try to sneak on them. Uh, again, my connections. When I had to find Didi the Glorious in in in, uh, in Curacao, my boss called me. He said, "Go." My boss that I used to work for that eliminated my position. Uh, they called me and said, "Hey, you got to go from Puerto Rico to Curacao. Find Didi the Glorious." The New York Times was there for three days. They couldn't find him. I made a few calls to scouts I knew, put me in touch with another scout, this guy, that guy. I was having lunch with Didi Gregorius 12 hours after I got to, to, to Curacao. Beat the hell out of the New York Times on the story. It was a great day. So nice. that's that's that. <laughs> well, I love it. I, no, I appreciate the answer. I, I, One I, day we should just do a story of stories. That's what I want to do. That's why I asked those. I, I, I tend to ask you every few episodes. I'm going to apologize to Johnny Morris now, though, because I took too much time. No, we'll, we'll keep him on. We, we still got him on. But uh, – just uh, we'll keep the preamble short because we're going to talk a lot about his, his accomplishments. But want to welcome John Morris to the show. 17 years with the Reds as a scout and a special assistant. Was named New York State Scout of the Year 2022. Seven years in the bigs, including an 87 pennant with the Cards. Uh, Hall of Famer with Seton Hall, the Cape Cod League, and New York State, just like uh, AMBS. And also an author. He's accomplished a ton of things we'll get to in the show, but author. And I want to hear about this first, John, if you don't mind. Bullet Bob comes to Louisville. John, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Wonderful yeah. to be here. So with all those baseball accomplishments, uh, how the heck do you become an author? Well, uh, at the end of my playing career, that was 1993, I immediately went into player development with the Angels. And after a couple of years uh, at AA and AAA as a hitting coach, I, I felt like I was getting very stale uh, in my affection for baseball. And I decided I was going to do something about it and recapture my love for the game. So I decided I was going to start generating some short stories. And there go my dogs. I'll be back in 30 seconds. That's okay. We love dogs here. We love dogs. Uh, well, you guys were talking a little bit about that. I don't want to spoil the punchline, but uh, no, I, I, uh, you know, I didn't even know Johnny had written the book. And uh, I had told him about I had just finished reading Kevin's book. Uh, on Jack McKay. And he said, you know, I wrote a book. And then he told me and I went on to, uh, we were up in Somerset, New Jersey scouting. I went on Amazon. I bought it. I read it in a day and a half. And, you know, it chronicled his life growing up in Long Island, in New York, uh, his family. Um, and it just made me smile the whole time because it was, it, he wrote, how he talks, he wrote how he played, he wrote what kind of person he was. There were funny things in there. There were sad things in there. Uh, you two were well, laughing your, your asses off before the show, telling some stories. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, and John, you know, share, share, share one of those. Can we get John? Yeah, I'm back, guys. Okay. So, uh, okay. Yeah, the, the title of the book is Bullet Bob Comes to Louisville, and uh, – the publisher decided that that was going to be the the title of the book based on the, the strength of that story alone. So anybody that's been in uh, minor league baseball anytime before 
1990 can appreciate this story because we probably run into Bob Feller at one time or another. Bob Feller was a decorated World War II hero, uh, uh, pilot. He was also uh, an amazing Hall of Fame pitcher, and he came to Louisville in 1986 uh, to do a pitching exhibition against a bunch of radio disc jockeys for the, against the Louisville Redbirds. So Bob came to the park nice and early and was on his best behavior. And at around 4.30, somebody made the mistake of asking him what he thought about Nolan Ryan. And, <laughs> and that apparently set Bob off. And <laughs> he turned into a not-so-nice person. And around 6 o'clock, he goes out to the field to throw batting practice with no screen in front of him. And as he's throwing to these radio disc jockeys, he's yelling at them and heckling them and abusing them. So Steve Braun decides that he's had enough. And my teammate runs inside, puts on his street clothes, comes back outside, uh, goes to the front of the line with aluminum bat and deposits the first five pitches into the right field bleachers. And <laughs> Feller decides that he's had enough and says, last pitch for you, young man. And the next pitch uh, was a line drive off of his shin, which <laughs> sent Bob hobbling down the left field line. So um, it, it, <laughs> it's a story that stayed with me for a very long time. And I can honestly say that Steve Braun is my hero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great story. That's, you know, that's, you're not going to get that kind of story. And I'm not putting anybody on the spot here, but you're not getting those kind of stories from nerds now. You know, the nerds are going to tell you a story about, you know, I, I went in and I saw that our XWOBA was so 14 over 75. and blah, blah, blah. So I went and, uh, you know, I went back and did some research at, uh, at Harvard where, you know, by the way, you can't, you know, you can say, you know, it depends on the context on your hate speech. You can say whatever you want. And I was, you know, so, so. Again, these are baseball stories from baseball people. The hell with where baseball is right now. I told you I was going to be on fire today, guys. That's no, okay. We, we love you. We love you that I mean, way. We wouldn't take no, it any John, other way. You know, John, yeah, that's what I was just saying. You know, when I read the book, it, it made me smile because it was all you. It was about your life in baseball. It was about your family, uh, the things that we all went through when we played. And uh, it, was, it, it, it was really good quite quite enjoyable for me and uh you know highly recommend to our audience so we're gonna we're gonna send you through the roof here with our sixty thousand. Yeah. Uh, yeah i'm gonna get it myself bob and by the way i can pull it bob on uh, on the story i'm gonna get it myself and here's my bob quick bob story uh johnny I, so i'm doing i used to call a fellow on occasion whenever i wanted to get those nolan ryan type quotes but <laughs> you could imagine how what Nolan Ryan set him off. Imagine what was going on even later. So I would call him sometimes when I was doing stories on guys and he, he, he would just go off. And by the way, he, my dad was in the Navy in World War II and he crossed paths with their ship. Uh, my dad's ship did something with, with Bob's ship and they, 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 you know, they, they had an interaction and stuff like that. So this is a World War II here. He wasn't, you know, he was, he was in the war. So it wasn't like he, you know, just like Phil Collier, like I said, these guys saved, they saved democracy, not the clowns of what we're doing now. But uh, uh, so so I, I call Bob and he's he's kind of, you know, he's in his 80s now or whatever. And he was like kind of out of breath. And I'm thinking, oh, geez, you know, sometimes you call an older gentleman and they may be in, you know, something going on. I said, Bob, you OK? He goes, and he's out of breath. He goes, yeah, I'm OK. I was just throwing a rubber ball against the garage, against the barn door door. So he was still out throwing a rubber, you know, rubber baseball, a rubber ball against the barn door, yeah. 
door in his 80s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. He was incredible. Now, with um, with that that process. Now, Will, you, you and you and John were talking. You were talking about John's childhood growing up. What other parts of that book kind of grabbed you? Well, I you know I, I think his relationship with his mom and dad, um, how supportive they were, and I, you know, if I remember correctly, you know, going through health issues while he was still playing, which I had with both my mom and dad, uh, you know, just, just a lot of things, you know, and, and then I had played against John. Uh, I was towards the end of my career. I think when he was in, uh, Fort Myers, was that 83, John? Yeah, that was 19, 1982 yeah. in the Florida State League. Yeah. 82. And I, uh, that was the year that I was, uh, I got released and I signed as an independent player, on a co-op team in Miami and then San Diego bought my contract. And I think I uh, had a game in the second half where I lost to them one to nothing. And I pitched off uh, 13 in the third innings and I threw 140 pitches that night uh, because I, I hadn't signed with anybody. And my manager said, you're still throwing good and you're better than anything I got down in that bullpen. And he left me out there. And I ended up losing one to nothing. I think it was that was night. Mark, uh, Mark Wiley, who released you? No, no. Uh, John I, I Tamargo. Released. Yeah, Tamargo was our manager there, and uh, he and I ended up becoming really good friends because I think I was the only sane person. We had Raul Tovar from you guys, Johnny, who was yep. crazy, and we had some independent guys who were nuts. We had a couple guys from the Orioles who were. Uh, it was it was like the what was that the outcast from Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer? Oh, the land of misfits. Yeah, it was like the land of misfits. Uh, but it, it it was a fun season, and I got you know signed by the Padres, but they left me there the rest of the season. So, but uh, no, just a lot of good memories, and you know knowing John all the years and scouting, and he's one of the guys as you guys always hear me say when I get to the ballpark and I see he's there. I know I'm going to have a good week uh, while we're there scouting and with some great conversations and we'll laugh. And uh, also a guy who's extremely knowledgeable, you know, John sat at a game watching uh, a double a uh, pitcher a couple years ago. And I think he called every pitch for five innings. Uh, and, you know, and it was something that I hadn't even noticed. Uh, I think he was sitting next to Brandon Duckworth, who we've had on our shows. And, uh, I, I'm sure you remember that Johnny, that was that week with Roy and, Oh yeah. What a great week. But yeah, but you guys knew that that organization who was going crazy with sweepers, this guy was changing his arm angle on his sweeper. And you guys called every pitch for, for five innings. And it was like, and then they couldn't understand why he was getting hit. It's called paying attention. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> John, what, what about your, your background, you know, either with your, you growing up, your time in the minors, your, your long time right now as a scout, um, when you're sitting down watching a prospect, um, first, what are things that you're, you're taking in right away uh, to, de- to determine. Um, obviously, we've got all the numbers, but the biggest thing right now is makeup. Um, w- what from your past helps you determine if a, if a kid's got the makeup 
to get to get to the next level? Well, the first thing I'm looking at is, you know, what, what kind of athlete is he? Does he move easily on the field? Does he hustle on and off the field? Uh, I don't know. I, it's so easy to look at, you know, whether a guy has power or if he can run fast or if he has a strong arm. But, you know, it's the subtle nuances of how he carries himself on and off the field. I, I think Will will agree with me that body language has a lot to do with how we evaluate player's makeup? How does he handle himself, especially on defense when he's not hitting well? So many times we'll go in and and see a, a top-ranked prospect who has a bad week offensively. And, and we want to see, like, does he hustle on and off the field? Does he take his offense into his defense? Does he kick the next routine uh, ground ball hit to him after a strikeout? So those are the types of things that we're trained to look for. I, I am very fortunate in that every coach I ever had from the time I was in grammar school was either from West Point or the United States Marine Corps. So I was trained very early on that discipline is important and paying attention to detail meant a lot. So so those are some of the things that I look for uh, in evaluating on on a very generic uh, level there. I want to follow up off of that because that's a good good question. And uh, before the other guys jump in, I just thought of this. So in a way, you're, you're, you're actually looking, like you say, everybody talks about, you know, we're looking for how it goes on and off the field and all that. But I think one of the things you're looking for, and t- correct me if I'm wrong, you're looking for a certain fearlessness of playing the game. And, um, uh, and by the way, when John and I were inducted into New York State Baseball Hall of Fame, John volunteered to do the first speech, and there was about 15 or so speeches so John wanted to get it out of the way early, which is a smart move by John. And because uh, uh, otherwise you think about your speech. But then I was able to do my speech later on. And John just brought it up today where I told a couple stories of, you know, busting by Barry Bonds' chops and things like that. But you, you, how do you see, like, because to me, that's a big thing now. I'm seeing a lot of these players, they're, they're, into, they're in their own world or, or um, they, 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 you know, they get thrown off course easily. Um, especially in the amateur world, but how, how do you see fearlessness in a player? I mean, that's something you can't put, a X, again, XWOBA on. You know, that's such a fascinating ke- a question, Kevin, because when I look at t- today's players, part of me is like, what planet are these guys from? And the, the other part of me is so envious of them because I can't tell if they're totally apathetic to what's going on on the field or – they have a really uh, short memory in a good way. So like, I see a lot of guys who show up uh, a couple innings after they strike out and they're laughing on the bench. And so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Hopefully they've gotten over it and they've moved on to the next, you know, pitch. But so sometimes I get confused by that. And, you know, I think uh, it's something Will sees on a regular basis as well. Yeah. No, it's uh, – I. I, I think what you're saying, Kevin and John and I will probably agree on this and all the guys that we've had on here that are still doing it, all of that specialness that you're talking about jumps out at us. And it's like, I don't know if I can quantify it, but I know what it is when I see it. Uh, the guy that comes to play every day, the guy that the manager knows what he's going to have and 
the guy guys, that wants to kick the other team's ass yeah, without that's, being a jerk. That's, that, that, that's a big thing, too. You know, we talk about it, John, on here all the time. When we grew up, yeah, we, you know, we always got along with players from other teams. But, you know, we wanted to kick their ass every night, and there was some hatred between <laughs> – some of the teams that we played, and I'm sure you had it, you know, you know, I came up with the Orioles and we were with the Yankees in every league and spring training. We hated each other, but I'm friends now with guys that I played against that were with the Yankees. You know, we went to war. It, it, it was what it was. Um, now, you know, these guys, they all, you, you know, how many times do we see a middle infielder give a guy a high five who just hit a double off of the pitcher. And I, I sit there and I go, if I'm pitching, I'm pretty pissed off right now. He's high five. And well, you guys, see Lindor do that all the time. Drives me nuts. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, Kevin, I was just thinking about the, the word you used earlier, fearlessness. So I'm, I'm, I saw a video replay this morning of Ellie De La Cruz, our, our superstar, talented shortstop. Right, who, right. Who stole second, short, and third all in one sequence in about 30 seconds. And talk about fearlessness. Here's a young kid who's 21 years old who's been in the big leagues for five minutes who goes out and does that on his own. I mean, I don't know how you teach that, but this is a kid who, you know, five years ago at the age of 16 when we signed him was five foot eleven weighed 140 pounds, and now five years later, he's 6'5 and 205, and he's probably the most electric player in baseball. Yeah. So I don't know how, you know how you teach that. Maybe growing up maybe in poverty and being really hungry at a very early age and wanting to get off of the island and so he could be successful and take care of his family, maybe that's where it comes from. But to demonstrate that on the field is extremely impressive. I wish – more players had that fearlessness that you refer to. Yeah, I think it's something, too, that's being lost a little bit now because of the constant tournament play where there's always another game, another tournament, and there's, there's not the, the pride in, in, okay, let's win this game. And and I think you, you just made me think of something because we touch all bases here. I heard a great description of Christian McCaffrey the other day. And, and I know John Lynch. You know, his father ran the radio station I worked at in San Diego way back when. So I knew John from a long, long time ago. And what Will said, I'm going to play off that, and you guys all have it. You know it when you see it. Well, John Lynch obviously knew it when he saw it, made the trade. We all knew how good McCaffrey was, but someone had a great description of him. He, they said he's got the, the the mindset of a walk-on, but the body of a, a, a pro, all pro. So I think – and I think you've seen that. And Dale Cruz too. He's got, you know, he's got that body now, and um, and obviously he's gonna have to work on some things to, to uh, clean up some things like the strikeouts and stuff like that. But I'm sure he'll work at it. When you, when did you first see him, and what what were you, you know, did you see him when he was five eleven, and and uh, what are your thoughts, and wh- where does he go from here, and what does he got to do to get better? Well, I, I first laid eyes on him in spring training this year, and. Uh... <laughs> I was starting to really dream on our team when I saw him at short and McLean at second and Spencer Steer at third and Encarnacion Strand at first and all these young, talented left-handed hitting outfielders. And I started dreaming on these guys as a group. And you just sensed that this could be something special. But you also saw in De La Cruz that he needed some time to tighten up his strike zone, to um, become a little less reckless on the bases and to you know, become maybe a little better on 
handling the routine play defensively. So, you know, that's what the minor leagues is for. It's part of their development process and the development does not stop at the big league level. Um, That's, I think that's part of why we see a lot of fundamental mistakes at the big league level is, uh, in my opinion, too many guys are are being rushed through the minor league process to get them there. You know, John, I, uh, uh, the other day on our podcast with Mark Wiley, I mentioned, uh, I saw a good interview with McCann, who had a good year offensively down with the Orioles this year. And, you know, like he had never, you know, I mean, he had gotten to the big leagues pretty quickly. And it was the first time I had heard it mentioned in a while, which we heard when we first signed, you know, you need 1,500 to 2,000 at bats. You need, you know, you know, 500 to 700 innings to figure out how to play in the big leagues. And, you know, he said, I finally have 1,500 at-bats, and I'm starting to feel comfortable. And, you know, you coming up with the Cardinals, I, I had heard this said, talked about Ozzie Smith years ago, that he was so good defensively that he figured out how to hit in the big leagues. Because when he first came up, he was kind of an out. But then each year he, he got better. He realized what guys were doing. He became a smarter hitter. He became more disciplined. But, like, people don't realize how important all of those things are to making players special, which is what the big leagues should be. And the sloppy shit that we see now sometimes is not special because we're not being patient with these guys to let them play. Well, part of the lack of the patience that you're talking about is we have a draft that's been cut to 20 rounds. We've eliminated 42 minor league affiliates. So there's, yeah. there's fewer players and couple of that with more injuries at the big league level. So by the time you get to August, you're, you're tapping into your double A pitching staff right. when those kids are not ready, they need more time and you're putting them in a position to not succeed, which is not the player's fault. It's just uh, yeah. we need more players that are they're they're good and more teams for them to develop. Right. And let me throw in, John. You guys probably can't say this, but you're also having people uh, like you like. Let's say you bring up this talented young pitcher, and they're throwing nothing but breaking balls instead of relying on their fastball. Let's get back to the fastball. Right. Yeah. No doubt. Fastball command. Yeah. Well, John, when, when you're evaluating hitters now, I know we talked a little bit about De La Cruz. Uh, break down for our audience. I know we're we're a uh, audio only, but break down for our audience the things that you're looking at uh, from the stands, the angles, the important priorities for you as you're reporting back to your club. Well, I, I think we all like to get in there on Tuesday to watch batting practice. It might be one of the few times during the yeah. week we're going to watch an affiliate take. Is Tuesday the day, John? Yeah, Tuesday's yeah, today. Tuesday's today, so we better get out there. Uh, Tuesday's the day that they do batting practice. That's yes, nice yes, to hear. Yes. Yeah. And hopefully they'll be hitting off of a live arm. Um, Are they wearing shorts and a T-shirt? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I don't care as long as they have numbers. That's all I care about. Yeah. Uh, but they, hey, no, they may be no, wearing no, different no, uniforms with different tops that are not matching. Um but yeah, anyway, we're, you know, we're joking about to, to explain to the audience how you're talking about live arm and one day a week. Oh, OK. Well, what? a lot of a lot of uh, affiliates have gone to hitting off of machines and they'll really ramp up the velocity on the machines to get the players, you know, game ready, uh, getting used to 
facing maybe 95 miles an hour during the game, but I don't think it's doing a whole lot for their confidence in terms of mentally getting them ready for the game. I think it, they're doing anything but that and, and beating them up. Well, they so, hit the they, they 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 hit the Willie Mays Hayes uh, major league pop ups into the into the batting cage when they crank it up to a hundred. Yeah, like, it's tough. I I, I would not have liked hard. that. I, I would not no. have gone into many games uh, feeling too good about myself in in today's batting practice environment. But I don't get to make those decisions. But to answer your question, Dave, I I like to watch hitters uh, early in the week from the side. Uh, I'm, if I could define hitting in one word, the word that I would would use is balance. Uh, hitting is balance. The object of pitching is to offset that balance. That's why pitchers throw breaking balls and change-ups. If balance didn't matter, all they do is throw 88-mile-an-hour fastballs down the middle of the plate and see how far you can hit them. So I'm looking for balance uh, from the side. I'm looking to see if a hitter can use the whole field. I want to see if he has a game plan, if he can work from right field to center field to left field and do it in an impressive, disciplined manner. That's all the more impressive. So that, that's what I'm watching for in, in batting practice. And then couple that with who are the athletes? Who are the ones that speak to me without me having to chase them? So that's usually what I do on Tuesdays. And then hopefully they'll come back out Wednesday and do it again. Right. John, I think that's a, that's a great description because I think some of the uh, younger scouts who are maybe analytically oriented – and what we're seeing a lot of today is what my friend Mike Cameron, who did, did okay in the major leagues, um, um, he, 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 he told a funny story recently about taking his kid out and his kid was hitting line drives all over the place at this batting cage. And one of the fathers came over and, and that, that kid uh, was hitting a lot of what they call, uh, and this is what these, these, these younger scouts are looking at, HLSP which stands for high level swing plan uh, instead of just hitting line drives, hit line drives. Okay. You, you probably like to see line drives for them to hit line drives, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what, the, what all that means. And uh, one thing I've gotten very good in this game, Kevin, uh, is staying in my lane. So yes. I, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. So, well, they, that's my point is they have to put an acronym on everything instead of just, you know, do the basic stuff, listen to what you're saying here, hit the ball hard, hit it to all fields, and forget about the high level swing path, you know, hit the baseball. Yeah. I mean, I love going on to LinkedIn and seeing some of Jeff Fry's posts when he puts Joey Votto out there and Albert yeah. Pujols out there and Mike Trout, and they're, they're talking about simple, repeatable fundamentals yeah. and becoming a better hitter. It, it's beautiful. The holiday family, Matt holiday. Yep. Yep. Great it's stuff. All, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, if you're going to build a house, you got to have a good foundation. We talk about it on our pitching show all the time, John, and it's the same thing in, in hitting it's balance, rhythm and timing. that's yep. built within your foundation that's going to allow you to become a consistent pitcher or hitter down the road. Uh, and and like we've walked away from that simplicity of the game, that you know, oh, you know, for some reason, well, you know that that's that's not sexy enough, I guess. You know, it doesn't yeah. sound like I'm real smart if I say that that's the foundation of the game, but it is. So <laughs> I did yeah. see the Rangers use it this year pretty well. 
no Rangers doubt. were amazing. No, what a what yeah. a what a great story watching them this it year. Was. Yeah. Um hey hey John, I wanted to ask a little bit, because uh, I also coached one of your team, you know, one of your guys there, but uh Mike Shepard and Seton Hall, how big of a part that was in your life going there and how good Mike Shepard was and you know, the players, you know, Biggio and Vaughn and uh, Valentin, that group that was a little bit before you, and uh, Doug Sinella, who I ended up coaching, and the guys that you played with there, you know, just how good of a program. And Mike ran a tight ship, um, but a tight ship in a good way because it made you the player you were, I guess, right? Yeah, Mike Shepard was awesome. I loved playing for him. He was really tough. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's there's ever been a coach – college coach in the history of college coaching that did more with less. I mean, you talk about yeah. lousy facilities, yeah. lousy access to, to playing, uh, you know, short season, spring season, uh, horrible facilities as bad, as bad as it can get. He just wanted really hungry kids and he taught them how to become better baseball players and better human beings. And if you look at his, Legacy. I mean, going back to the early 1970s when Rick Cerrone came on and they were going to Omaha on a regular basis. Um, it's really an amazing track record and legacy that he's left us. So I'm and very, very grateful. Was, I'm so grateful that I got to play for him for three years. Yeah. And the facilities weren't the best back then, right? They were all terrible. Was there a tree in the outfield? Yes. Yeah. Down the right field line. Because yeah, I remember, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to promote myself, but again, things pop up when we do these shows for great people like you. But when I was way back at Rampo College, when we played them in the fall game, I remember hitting that tree. So I, had, <laughs> I had a good at bat that day. One. Well, we had a snow fence. We had a snow fence out in center field, and I remember running through the snow fence several times to catch uh, home runs, and had wound up with getting tetanus shots. Oh. Uh, you know, uh, he, he he recruited me in '76 and '77 when Cerrone was there and Greg Jamison, I think, and uh, you know that group that was was really good. And you know, uh, because it was in New Jersey, I went up and visited. And then I think a couple weeks later, I visited North Carolina, and it was like, well, if I'm gonna not if I'm not gonna sign, I think I'm gonna go. North Carolina, <laughs> you know, you know, they had a beautiful stadium down there. The weather was nicer. Uh, Mike Roberts was going to be the head coach at that time. Um, so uh, it was, uh, it was night and day, but, you know, had I gone and played for Shep, I'm sure I would have uh, learned a, an awful lot because the people I all ran into after the fact all knew a lot about the game and had great makeup too. Well, they, they, uh, and, and talk about this, John, the, you, you mentioned it earlier, but expand on it. The, the, the coaches that you had that had military backgrounds, they had military backgrounds, so they expected certain things. Explain, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, they, they expected you to, to be a good student, number one, to, to be a great teammate, to hustle on and off the field, um, to show up on time, just, you know, fundamental stuff that was really important that helps you a lot later in life once you know once you're out of the program or you're done playing baseball and those are fundamental principles that I've carried with me for the rest of my life so you know 
I remember coming back from Cape Cod after my sophomore year, and I was the MVP of the league, and I showed up for the start of my junior year, and I went one for 12 over at the Hansberger tournament at St. John's and left 20 guys on base, and Shep just aired me out in front of the whole team, just letting me know that, you know, you're not going to be satisfied. I know you're going to get drafted. I know you're out of here, but I'm not going to let you be satisfied. And he was telling me and he was telling the whole team that that was not going to be acceptable. So it was an amazing lesson that he taught me and it allowed me to, to move forward in my junior year and just plow right through it. Uh, uninterrupted. It was great. I was going to say, you probably drove in some runs after that. I did a lot. You know, you, you know, John, you mentioned the military side of things, and I talked to guys I signed in 77, and I think that the tenets that we had of the people you played for, like Shepard, and then we when you first signed, baseball was a lot like military. There was a lot of little disciplines. You know, with the Orioles, we had to be clean-shaven every day. We had to wear our socks a certain way. Uh, you were taught that there was – something bigger than yourself. And that was the team and the group of people that you were playing with. And these are all military tenets that people go, oh, well, that's all bullshit, but it's not because it made us who we are. It made the game what it was when you watch videos all the time of the game we played in and watched in in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s um, when things were done right and there was a lot of discipline that was involved in it the game was played better there's no doubt about it very true well very great great points um can't disagree with anything you're saying i just you know i i say uh, when i'm looking at today's player that when i played it wasn't better uh it wasn't worse than it is today it was just different and yeah. we can attach whatever meaning we want to. I'm glad that I got to play and grow up in the era that I did, where there were no cell phones and internet and right. uh, playstations. I, you know, I don't know how things would have turned out for me had I had access to all that. So I'm I'm really grateful that I had the upbringing that I did, and the the challenges kids have today, they, they got to deal with that stuff. Yeah. Well, you see it in the Reds that their manager does a pretty good job with discipline, right, and stuff. Yeah, he does. He does a great job, and he learned from his dad and his yeah and his grandfather, David Bell, right. Gus no, Bell, and, and uh, Buddy Bell. You know, John. The you know the other thing is that, uh, um, and, and a lot of us talk that have been on this show, and a lot of guys who you know, like Roy and Brandon, and um. <clears throat> we're disappointed because the athletes are so good that if they knew how to play and were being taught how to play the right way, this game would be so special. It would be unbelievable. And yeah, and, I don't, I don't necessarily blame the players. I mean, I, yeah, I blame no, the, it's, the it's, people that are allowing all this silly bad flips and yeah, you know, and, it's people who look the other way at bad behavior and lacks lacks of discipline and lack of you know things things that would make the game better. That's all, you know. It would, and, and it's disappointing. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Well, I know we got to get into some other things, but the last thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, and I like to do this sometimes with our guests. When you're in the middle of your season, 
at, at the height of everything, just explain what a normal day might be or, 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 or what you do in a, in a work day. Uh, for me, well, routine is important to me. Uh, I get up and have breakfast and eat and get online and read my articles that I may have missed from the night before and uh, write up last night's pictures that I saw uh, so that they're still fresh in my memory and then make some phone calls, do some networking, have lunch. And usually by then it's time to go to the park. And, you know, I learned a long time ago, you're always dangerous when you're at the park. You're not dangerous in your hotel room. So it's, it's always good to be at the park where you can learn something or see something that you've never seen before. And then, you know, watch BP, talk to good people like Will George and watch the game and process all that information. Go home, throw your bag in the corner of the room and go to bed. There you go. <laughs> it's a it, it, it's a really sexy lifestyle, huh, Johnny? <laughs> Uh, that's not the word that I would use, but no, you know what? Uh, Deacon Jones, you remember Deacon? Oh, yeah. gave me great, great advice when I got into scouting after I was coaching. He said, uh, as long as you can enjoy your own company, you'll be okay in this. And that's the truth. Like you said, you know, you spend a lot of time with yourself. You are on the phone making some calls and, you know, I call you all the time. Hey, I'm watching so-and-so and this guy got, took in the first round <laughs> looks like shit and you go no no he's better than what you're seeing and you know it, it 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 it's a help for me and you know guys like you are always a help and our network of trust as well knowing that uh that you are at the ballpark and you have a good feel for the game you might point something out to me that i'm not seeing that this guy's doing is always helpful too well, and I'm going to play devil's advocate here. <clears throat> so you guys, when you're at the ball, and all of a sudden, what happens when you see a younger scout show up at like four, five, six, seven, whatever? Well, yeah, that, that's yeah. his loss. That's his loss. Yeah. I'll, let, I'll let him figure it out. If he, wants to, if he wants to come and have a conversation about it, I'll, I'll be happy to talk to him, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to chase his attention. I no, I, I love seeing him set up their – uh, Edgetronic cameras and the radar guns, and they sit on their cell phone all night long, and they don't even watch the game. And it's like, you know, gosh, if you watch the game, it tells you an awful lot. It really does. I, I, quick story. I was in a, again, same thing in the media. I noticed that happening, and uh, I remember it was something I saw one day with uh, when when Buck was manager of the Orioles, and uh, and uh, and couple of younger writers came up to me and said, how did you, when did you, how did you see that? I said, you know what? I watched the game and I watched between innings. And and why do you think I sit on the far left so I can look into that dugout so I can see what's going on? So it's the same thing for you guys. You got to watch the game. Here's a question for uh, John, you or Will, or see who jumps on it first. Speaking about watching the game, who's Brendan Hardy? Brendan Hardy is a minor league pitcher who was with the New York Mets, who I saw this year in Brooklyn and in Binghamton. And he was recently selected by the Colorado Rockies in the minor league rule, rule five draft. And he's, he was a player that I had interest in. So will, will George beat me to the punch again? Well, Will, Will made me bring that up. He kept texting me. You got to bring that up. You got to bring that up. No, I mean, it was luck of the draw. <laughs> I'm teasing. 
Hey, John, that's what happens when you're the third worst or the second worst team in baseball <laughs> or whatever we were this year. We got to pick ahead of you, and uh, uh, we got to pick ahead of, of Joe Rigoli, but he's a good-looking athletic kid. He signed out of high school in the back when they in the 35th round, I believe, uh, and he's a kid who got, has gotten better every year, and surprisingly the Mets left him on a double-A roster. Uh, he's only 23 years old, very athletic kid, good body, has a good arm. And, good pick, uh, good pick. Yeah, yeah, we were excited to get him. And this was one of those occasions, Will, you, you discussed that he showed out both by the eye test and analytically. Yeah, analytically our people really liked him too. There were some uh, things, I guess, that they look at that, 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 that John and I see as – Deception and sneakiness is uh, his, I think it's his extension and some other. Yeah, there was a medical term you'd said before. I can't remember. I I, I can't remember. Scapular rotation extension, something like that. Yeah, like John said, I try to stay in my lane. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, didn't mean to pull you guys out. I just, I thought that was a neat story. Both you guys get to the park early, as Kevin asked you. You have the the discipline uh, to do the same stuff over and over. Um, and that, that's what gets the results. So I thought that was a, especially with the rule five, where you really got to be in the weeds to, to find a guy, both you guys identified the same guy, which I thought was telling, uh, in, in a good way. So, uh, we kept, I know John, you got stuff going on at the house and whatnot, and, um, uh, we'd love to have you talk about your foundation, but I want to kind of turn it to Kevin and see if he has any more follow-up questions or will. No, let's let you know. We we always do stuff that's more than a game, more than on the field. And I know John does a lot of stuff. And I let go 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 there, Dave, and let okay. everybody know. But I want to end it with your question too, Kevin. The one you usually do after this. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. John, we'll we'll start with this, and then we'll 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 go ahead, Dave. You ask your thing, and then I'll end with my question. Yeah, uh, John, talk to talk to the foundation work that you and your family are doing. Right now, yes. Thanks, uh, Dave. Appreciate it. So my wife has been on the advisory board for St. Jude Children's Research in Memphis, Tennessee. And a couple of years ago, I, I had uh, <laughs> serious FOMO, fear of missing out, and I wanted to attach myself to her wagon. And I talked to some people in ALSEC, which is the, uh, the fundraising arm of St. Jude, and asked them if uh, I could help their leadership programs. They have leadership programs called SJLS, which is St. Jude Leadership Society. And I was able to do a pilot program for some of their uh, philanthropic leaders in high school and college who raised tens of thousands of dollars every year. So uh, I started, I've been working in their leadership department for the last three years, working with brilliant young minds who are interested in making a difference in our country and our, and our world. And also in the the fundraising department, uh, my wife has raised millions of dollars over the last few years to help kids with with cancer. So next April, April 5th, is our fourth annual gala, uh, Give to Live Gala at the Loading Dock in Stanford, Connecticut. And the goal is to raise a million dollars or more. The, um, The last three events have been amazing. We've received tremendous help from the New York Mets specifically Jacob deGrom, Francisco Lindor, and Donovan Mitchell, and from the New York Yankees, specifically Tim Nairing and Susan Waldman have been amazing supporters and uh, very generous in their time and their giving. 
So I'm very grateful to that. So uh, the goal is to help raise $2 billion a year to fund the hospital so that no patient or no child shall ever receive a bill from the hospital, which is one of the many magical things about St. Jude. So we look forward to the next event in April being another huge success. So thanks for giving me the forum to talk about it. Yeah, we'll bring that up in April, too. I mean, uh, yeah, that's awesome, that's, uh, that's great work, and that's what it's that's, all about. And, and good for Lindor, and good for uh, those players. And, you know, I know Jake. Yeah, yeah I oh, remember visiting. Guys. They're great guys. Yeah. Very, very giving, big hearts. Yeah, and, and I remember visiting Jake down in Florida when he was, uh, you know, after he won Rookie of the Year. And, you know, you could see from his mom and his background where he would, uh, and his dad, where he would... Uh, want to do that stuff. And, and, um, again, Lindor is an incredible talent. I, you know, I think he, uh, I think I would, this is just a personal statement. I would just love to see him want to just really crush the other team, make that his goal every day. And I think that's the Mets will get where they want. Cause he yeah, just, I agree with an, you. He, he's an incredible he, player. He really he is. Player. Yeah. Hey, hey, Kevin, just a quick question to John, cause you and I both cover the Mets and, I thought that when the, that became his team again, he became a different player. I thought that bringing Scherzer and Verlander in, he was not the main focus maybe. And when those guys left, there was like a new energy about him, it seemed like when I saw them in the second half last year. Well, I'll go first because um, I, I, I picked up on it a couple of years ago. When Buck – when Buck made Lindor the center of activity in spring training and things like that, he rose to the occasion, I felt. I think yeah. it, he needs to have it feel like it's his team. And yeah. and I think there was so much going on with that team. And, and, again, part of it is you bring in different guys. They have different personalities. And, and, and let's let's face it, you guys don't know better than anything. It, you know, pitchers and hitters, you know, they can be friends, but they're not best friends. And uh, so – I think you always need a position player to be be the uh, the heartbeat of the team, and I think he he probably had to give up some power to let those guys feel those guys welcome, and I think it became a little dysfunctional across the board with the Mets because we saw what happened to Buck too. Buck Buck wasn't Buck this year for some reason a lot of times, and and I'm sure Buck would have a great explanation of that, but I'm sure it was somebody. Um, uh, what was going on with the front office and who who wanted what? So yeah, I I, I think Lindor uh, he seems to be in a much better place. I expect bigger things from him this year. No question. And Kenny, want to end uh, with your last last question? Yeah, this is a simple question, John. Uh, be quick. You don't have to answer it right away. You can think about it for ten seconds, but no more than ten seconds. And uh, it, it's a simple question, but you, there's no one better to ask this question to. Uh, what does it mean to John Morris, a longtime baseball guy on every level, player, scout, whatever? What does it mean to be a ball player? So what does it mean to you to be a ball player? I'm sorry, guys. I just got back on. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no problem. It's a simple question. What does it mean to you to be a ball player? You know, someone that's been in the uh, – game for so long at so many different uh, options and you can think about it for a second but well, what does it mean to be a ball player I mean I, I never took it for granted Kevin I never uh, I just realized like wow that's it's really special to 
I can say that about anybody that plays above high school. I mean, to, to play a, in a college level is, is one thing. And then to be drafted and, and to be a minor leaguer is, is a great thing in itself. And then to get to the big leagues, uh, just to spend one day in the big leagues is, is an amazing feat. But, and then to have a career in the big leagues is, a, is another great thing. And then to be a superstar on top of that or a Hall of Famer or an all-star. I mean, it's just an incredible opportunity. It's very, very special. I never, ever, ever took it for granted. Um, I remember very early in my career when I was in college, my freshman year, I made up my mind that I was going to go work in the FBI or the CIA. Uh, and it wasn't until my sophomore year that I started to realize that, hmm, maybe I, I can do something here. So uh, I never lost sight of what an, an amazing opportunity it is, how talented you have to be to, to play at the highest level. Uh, and you have to be very fortunate. The timing has to be good. You have to remain healthy, which was always a challenge for me. So uh, to be able to do it at the biggest, at the highest level for an extended period of time is an amazing gift and one that every player should be grateful for. Well said. Well, I think that's great. And you've given that's tidbits. Yeah, you know, gave tidbits to our audience uh, today, parents, kids, uh, on how to go about it. Because I think that that early generation, the parent generation, sometimes I don't know how much they get it. It's the... It's that uh, generation that we talked about today that needs to have the voice out there to kind of bring it back to where it would be. So, John, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, tremendous, tremendous interview. And uh, we got to get the we got to get to know the names of your dogs, though. They became famous. <laughs> they become rock stars. Well, Archie's yep. the crazy one from Arkansas that I rescued 12 years ago. I was told that would happen for a year, uh, but that was bad scouting from the vet's part. And then Danjo is my little bulldog. So I, I know they've been rock stars today. I appreciate your patience and understanding, mm -hmm. guys. Uh, now we're, we're hey, uh, just I, I got one quick thing and Kevin you touched on it early uh, you guys are all special to me uh, relationship wise and uh, John's one of those guys for me when I get to the ballpark uh, I know I'm going to have a good night and I appreciate the friendship and relationship that we've had over the years and uh, God bless you, man. Thanks for coming on. We've been well, thanks trying for having me, guys. If I could just leave, leave you with one more thing. You know, I, I tell these young kids, these St. Jude kids all the time, and, you know, I say it to people in our baseball industry that, you know, we, we all may be in different industries, whether it be finance or baseball or education. Uh, we Our industries may vary, but we're all in the same business, and our business is the people business. So if we're not building and maintaining relationships, we have no business and we're useless to our employer. As Kevin pointed out so beautifully earlier, his ability to connect and, and track down resources so he can get access to somebody like D.D. Gregorius is a beautiful example of what I'm talking about. So build and maintain relationships and you're, no you're going to be OK. That's right. I love that story, Kevin, too. It's about it's not always about resources, about resourcefulness. and. Uh, Tracking yeah, down. Was there for three days, never got him. So you beat, you, you beat their butt. I'm going to put that in the show notes too. I love it. I love that story. But the uh, bullet Bob comes to Louisville, just made my Christmas list. My son just put the thumbs up saying he's got it on Amazon in the shopping cart right now. Thank God he doesn't have the credit card. Otherwise we'd be out of business here. <laughs> well, I have a couple still in my house. I use them as coasters for my five o'clock cocktail. 
And I also use them as door jams for my French doors in my living room. So they do still have a useful purpose in some Multiple purposes. Uh, I'm going to read it. I'm going to put it on I'm my shelf. You, it's a, I'm telling you, it's a good read. You'll Go buy it and you'll enjoy it. Oh, definitely will. Um, and I'll make sure you guys get old school and how to field a ground ball by our three-time world champion, Ted Kubiak, our very first guest on the network and a great fan of the show. Blackout Coffee, be awake, not woke. Coffee's on Kevin this month, capital K-E-V-I-K, number 20 at checkout. Get you 20% on all your coffee purchases. Make sure you use that. And to our audience, slowly creeping towards 60,000. We should get there by Christmas time. Appreciate your support. You guys know what to do. Five, uh, five stars, some great comments, and that'll help us climb the podcast world charts. And we're battling the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in MLB. So thanks again, guys. Episode 380, Coach and Kernan. Follow Kevin on Ball 9, tremendous articles, two every week, and support those guys on social media as well. Guys, thanks so much for a great show. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Take care.